BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Tonight, we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. And it starts right now. Oh, welcome back to another episode of a typical disgusting display podcast for writers by writers who hate writing. Uh, Today, we're excited. We're going to be talking to Diallo. We're going to be talking to him about music and writing and comedy. And uh, he's just a really great guy. It's going to be a great conversation. Um, But Goldie, let's talk a little bit about last week's episode, which is uh, creating quite a buzz because we, we did something that we had never done before as writers on this show where we actually wrote a scene on air. That was cool. Um, And uh, it seems like People kind of enjoyed that, but did you come away with any feelings about that episode of us actually doing the writing? Yeah, that you had the best joke, so I know you had a good time. First joke of the day. First joke of the day. Yeah, you got that. <laughs> I looked stupid. No, you didn't. Uh, you did ninety percent. And then of I, thing. you know, I, I was just like for it. I mean, I was just totally naked and exposed. And and again, because <laughs> I've I've been off on script this week for Family Guy. Yeah. And I'm once again confronted by the fact that I'm like a total fraud. (laughs) I know nothing about writing. Like you've sent me off to write a script. Like you might as well have sent me off, come back with an airplane in a week. (laughs) Here's a couple parts. And uh, it's like, I don't know how to do this. And I'm confronted by this, not just like every page, but literally I'll write a line and it's like, well, that was probably the last line I'll ever write, right? And You've then it's just, there's, an, there's another one? I have to write another line? It's like, dude, you're on page nine. Like, there's a lot of lines to come. Why is this a shock to you? And it's, I, there's no, what is this? Like, what, the, what would they say? I don't know. I don't even know what to say myself ever. Like, I'm in every conversation. There's, so there's, where I live. I walk my dog every morning at the same time. Yeah. And at about set and at the, at the same time by the same place and I encounter the crossing guard for the local elementary school who's getting there at the same time. And right. so we have a sort of groundhog day conversation. Yeah. I can't even come up with anything to say for that. Every day I'm like, <laughs> I have nothing to say to this woman. Fuck. Uh, she kind of says like, happy Thursday. Yeah. Like she always has a take. Yeah. You know, right. like something about the day, something about the weather. And I'm like, I'm the professional writer. I have nothing. I'm like, uh, yeah. Uh, hi. What? Like, and now you, I have a script, and it's like these fake 
people who don't exist, I'm supposed to tell them You're better what to at say that. in these. It's, 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 how did I end up doing this? I suck at it. I don't know how to do it. Not true. And Not then, true. And then, no, stop. And, and so I, I, I don't know. I quit. I hate he it. quits. He quits. He did it here on air. Well, first of all, here's your first writer trick you should know. You say you're on page nine. Tweak the margins. Oh, <laughs> You'll be on page 12 before you know it. It's so funny you say this, Goldie, and every time you say this, I always say the same thing back, which is you're full of shit. <laughs> but you do, you have had this fear and feeling for years where every joke, every joke, every joke. I think like there's been a slow onset. Uh, you know, I read once that uh, Agatha Christie, you could tell in her earlier books, she had this flourishing vocabulary. And then... <laughs> By her last book, she was only using something like it was like seven hundred words. Oh god, she was down to, and she could I, only remember those. Right, so I feel like you know, if I come across a word like griping, I'm like, okay, I still know that one. Yeah. <laughs> Ratchet. Yeah, there we it. go. Okay, yeah. that, that's a word you don't hear too often. Yeah, well, and by the way, you think of ratchet, you got two extra words tagged onto the back of it. You got to ratchet it up. <laughs> you see, then that's longer, and it's you're up. on your way. But that's so funny to hear, and your scripts are always awesome. Well, so this, this one won't be. Like, I know. You said, you <laughs> this said will that be the one that'll suck, time, and the time before that, and the time before uh. that. Um, well, that's always. Very funny to talk about your uh, misery. So we're life. doing this podcast about writing. Just so you know, this is like you go into a doctor. There are no diplomas on the wall. And you say, oh, I thought doctor needed to go to medical school. And they say, no, 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 no. No, you just need like a bed with wax paper on it now. And you can give it and you can teach the class. Uh, oh, fraud Stewart. I love it. Live in concert. Uh, no, you're excellent at it. And don't, please don't tell that to our friends. They, they're going to stop listening. Um, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, anyway, something that we are both legitimately terrible at. Let's get to it right now. Let's get to Johnny Jokes. Whoa, from Hollywood Live. Yes, that's right. Here's Janice. No, boy. Okay, well. These are going to be terrible. Here we go. <laughs> NASA, maybe you've heard of them. NASA is sending a giant 3D printer to the moon in an attempt to build infrastructure using moon dust. Uh, should that fail, they plan to use wishes and dreams. <laughs> wishes and dreams instead of moon dust. Uh, here's a sad story. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has passed away at the age of 100. He gone! Yes, he gone. Uh, Kissinger is, of course, best known for brokering lasting peace in the Middle East uh, for his kooky voice. <laughs> Couldn't do it in the Middle East. Okay, third of four. Uh, a new book about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster reveals that so many men were rendered infertile by the blast that the government had to build them their own hospital. Yeah. 
Uh, it was either that or low-income housing. <laughs> low-income oh, housing. Oh, there we go. I tried to say it the right way. But I gave you a good look, JC. This is kind of fun now, in person. Say, say Cher- Chernobyl is how I would have said it. What do you mean? You said Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Wow. Well, I'm part Russian. Oh, oh is that? So but I would have said Chernobyl, but I don't know. I'm not Sh- Russian. <laughs> da. Chernobyl. Oh, okay. I don't know. We'll, we'll get Mila back yeah. and we can ask okay. her. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. By the way, by the amount. You're sure you're saying it wrong or sure? <laughs> I'm 100% sure. Raise your hand. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> if you're sure. Yes. By the way, by the, the number of words that my dad mispronounces, it leads me to believe that perhaps I am wrong. From oh, wow. a man who used to call it a saburu. Oh, I got wow. one of those uh, Saburu. Maybe that's how it's supposed to be. Printed. I don't know. Saburu. I don't, th- I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> and finally for me, thank Christ. <laughs> uh, well, uh, this week marks the annual Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Or as Harvard now refers to it, the week of wax genocide. Oh. Week <laughs> of wax genocide. <laughs> Second Johnny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here we go. Well, there's a little overlap here. Uh, earlier this week, Henry Kissinger passed away. Oh, oh he gone please. again. Sorry. Yeah. He gone! <laughs> yeah, his family said he'd been ill and uh, in his final days couldn't even muster the strength to eat, drink, or massacre innocent civilians. Yes. <laughs> yes, reckoning. Okay. Uh, Tiffany Haddish. Oh. Says she's sworn off drinking after being booked for her second DUI. Yeah, she's saying, she says she's looking forward to a new life of crashing her car sober. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Soberu. Soberu. And uh, more sad news uh, TV legend Norman Lear mm. has passed away. Yeah. Uh, gone! Yeah. Yep. Uh, in his final moments, he was surrounded by friends, loved ones, and that stupid hat. <laughs> <laughs> I hated that thing. I like, really like that. I really hated oh that God. thing. John Denver's glasses and Norman Lear's hat is my nightmare of a person. Oh, that is great. I don't know if Alex can recover from that oh, one. I love that joke so much. Uh, I don't know. Did you, did you, did you hear about this? Uh, Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress. Uh, yeah, he asked his family if they wanted to spend more time with him, and they said yes after 15 rounds of voting by a razor-thin margin. <laughs> And finally, yeah. uh, Starbucks. Ooh. Starbucks has lost over $12 billion in market capitalization amid protests over what has been viewed as a pro-Israel stance. Ooh. The coffee giant denies taking sides, pointing out they also have 20 stores in the Hamas terror tunnels. Ah! <laughs> Excellent. Oh, the... the- the boy who couldn't write. <laughs> the boy who could not write. Those were the last ones. <laughs> yes, always, always. Okay. Uh, we're really excited to have an, a new friend here. Um, he's someone who I'm really a fan of. Uh, he has a show with another person we've interviewed on Sirius XM called One Song with Blake Robin, our good friend Luxury. But he's done so much more. Actor, writer, Director, musician, probably missing some things. Uh, please welcome Diallo Riddle. 
Thank Welcome. You <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes I'll say, hey, sometimes DJ. And somebody asked me the other day, like, why sometimes DJ? And it's like, it's that one thing that I used to do to support myself that I can't quite let go. So I still do yeah. it sometimes. Well, that's yeah. as good a point as any to dive in on because I have a lot of curiosity about DJing. Uh, <laughs> so how do you go from playing yourself music to playing music for other people and getting paid like ego ego something <laughs> tells you that no but you know i will say that the first time i decided i wanted to dj i was in college and i i liked going to parties and i had been that guy who like danced a lot yeah. <laughs> at the parties and then at some point i realized you know what i'm not the greatest dancer but man if the dj would just put this on everybody would would go nuts and so I started, and plus I got fired from my term time job at the law library. So I both <laughs> needed money and more to do at parties. So right. just checked two boxes that were pretty important boxes to me at the time. And so this and, is, by the way, I'm just letting the audience know, this is at Harvard is where this is taking place. Right. There weren't a lot of DJs at Harvard back in my day. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. it was, there was one guy who did all the black parties in Boston. So if you went to Harvard or MIT or Tufts, uh, we all went to each other's parties because <laughs> there weren't enough of us. But if you put four schools together, <laughs> we could fill. We could fill. A, we could you fill can a Voltron a party together. <laughs> <laughs> somebody get somebody call Tufts. Where are the Tufts people? We need them. Um, and is, is so this in? Guy. So you were born in '77. So this is about '90. Yeah, this is the late '93. Uh, so like <laughs> cell phones and email, not. I, I mean, 90s. so how is this communicated? Just a phone oh, chain? Oh, gosh. It was, um, I mean, what was a phone chain even then? I mean, what's interesting is that the word got out. I think there were a lot of flyers. I felt like people, you know, you'd print out a flyer, you'd, you'd tape it to the kiosk, Voice you know, mail? on the yard. Yeah. Yeah. Answering machines, maybe. Answering machines, like, you know. <laughs> I've never felt so old in my I life. Know, um, so did you did you know how to do it, though? Did you know, like, I ha I mean, like, literally all I know about DJing is from the song Two Turntables and a Microphone. And <laughs> I mean, is that what it is? Or did you, like, how did you so, know what to buy and do? Okay, so let's, let's dive into it. I was going to yeah. say there was one guy, his name was Shock T., and Shock T did everybody's parties because he was a legitimate DJ. When I decided to start DJing, people were like, ooh, Shock T not going to like you, man. <laughs> it was like, okay, but you know what? I'm going to take on, you know, this Goliath because uh, he was a great DJ. I went down to Roxbury. I bought, I remember I bought like four or five 12-inch records. <laughs> and, and I knew that wasn't enough to do a party, but I, you know, I cobbled together an hour-long set. And those first couple of parties, I just played for an hour. And then at the end of that hour, I would go back and play a lot of those songs again. Yeah. Um, but That's yeah, awesome. I, did you I, I practice? Thought, was, like, did you practice transitioning yes. on your own? Yes. And, you totally have to. Uh huh. Uh, my, my grades suffered because <laughs> all of a sudden I bought this Gemini Scratch Master, which I wish yeah. I still had. I mean, like, I bet you I could find one on eBay. It would cost thousands of dollars, yeah. but it was like a beat up Gemini Scratch Master, mix, uh, Scratch Master Mixer. And uh, and I and I got my I applied for my first credit card. I got a line of I think two thousand dollars, and I bought two techniques turntables because that's what one does. Um, yeah. yeah. And I just practiced them, and I wasn't good. I was actually a terrible DJ, but I charged a third of what Shock T charged, <laughs> and being I know I lowballed him, and then <laughs> and then because I was one of the students, I actually knew everything that we wanted to hear. 
So right. my song yeah. selection was actually impeccable. I just didn't know how to blend for anything. And this is, I always tell people like when, when I'll never forget, I was DJing years, about 10 years later uh, with Samantha Ronson, who was a great DJ and, um, and a DJ who I won't say because they're famous now. Um, but this DJ came in and he had his laptop and he was notorious for being a terrible DJ in terms of transitioning. Like we used to call him train wrecks because his, his blending would just <laughs> sounded awful, but he brought in his laptop and I'll never forget. He had his, uh, his, he had a song sorted by the beats per minute. And I was like, Oh, you can do that on a laptop. And that fundamentally changed DJing because it took DJs years to figure out, Oh, this Prince song matches with this Michael Jackson song. Yeah. This radio, if you had an eclectic case, it's like this Radiohead song has the same BPM as this two live crew song. Like that thing took years to <laughs> yeah. figure out. Yeah. And all of a sudden with one click, you know, a DJ could have 10,000 songs on a laptop and know this song will definitely blend in some weird way with this song. And so that fundamentally changed DJing. This is around like 2006, 2007, maybe uh, with Serato Scratch Live. So I'll just never forget that like me and Samantha looked at each other. We were like, ooh, the gig is up. Like he's about to force a lot of DJs out of the industry because, you know, much like print journalism, this is going away. Uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear what songs were in that first hour that you cobbled together. Do you remember any of the, any of the I do, songs? I do. Um, uh, Temperature is Rising by Mob Deep. Uh, Resurrection by Common. Back when I think he still might have been called Common Sense. Uh, you know, it was a hip hop set. It was a hip hop set. Um, I don't remember what my big clo- my big closer might have been might have been hypnotized uh, by Biggie because you know you needed Ooh. sort of like peak of the night sort of songs but yeah um, but I still have all those records they're in storage now because I just practically I just don't need them um, but I haven't th- I haven't thrown away a piece of vinyl uh, knowingly. Cool. Uh, my entire life so i still got them somewhere hot tip from a white guy celebration by cool and the gang throw that in (laughs) did you see the did you see the quest love story about celebration i think we have if you haven't it's really quick so they're they um prince opened for them in sometime in the late 70s before celebration comes out and he performed i want to be your lover and they liked that song so much that they took the chord structure of I want to be your lover, and they reversed it. Wow. So if God. you listen to Celebration, essentially in reverse, you can hear I want to be your lover. Wow. wow. What? Cool. I just yeah. get so you, by the time you got out of school, were you DJing professionally? Were you making a living off it? Or it was just like yeah, nice so side hustle? Well, listen, uh, in college, it was a great hustle because you yeah. were having fun and you were getting like a hundred, maybe $150 for a big party. Probably some status. Uh-huh. Yeah, and yeah, a little bit of status, but really, I was such a bad DJ that yeah. you know, for for really, people were like, "Hey, just pay him very little. He'll put the music on. The records <laughs> won't stop." Um, when I got out to California, I was an assistant at Paramount Pictures. That's a story for another time. But um, I was supplementing my income, my my you know, amazing as income as an assistant <laughs> uh, at Paramount Pictures with my DJing and. Eventually, I decided, you know what? I don't want to work in TV and film. I want to be a DJ for a living. My parents were thrilled. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I got my first. Well, like DJ they're not gig. thrilled by TV usually. Mm-mm. You know, like my parents weren't thrilled with yeah a comedy TV any of that. I well, don't look, think DJing I mean, like... would have mattered at that point. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised because it was a sliding scale. When I went to Harvard, I told him, "Mom, Dad, I'm going to Wall." Because I was a poor. We were, I, I don't even know if we were working class. We might have just been poor. I wore the same sweater 
all the yeah. time, you know, to school. Like, you know, but I got good grades and I got to Harvard. And so everybody in my community was like, oh, man, he's going to be a millionaire. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go work in finance on Wall Street about sophomore year. I was like, dang, I don't want to do that. So I had my big you know, coming out <laughs> conversation with my parents, like, mom, dad, I don't want to be a Wall Street broker. I don't, yeah. you know, sorry to let everybody down like this, but I will make something of myself. And, um, and then, and then they selfishly died before I blew up. So that's, on them. you know, um, my dad, my dad sort of did the same thing. And maybe the last conversation I had with him, he said, it's too bad. You would have been a good doctor. Oh, uh, <laughs> Listen, we can. Anyway. I think us and the dead dad club can laugh at these moments because yeah. I, I feel like, I, to a certain extent, I feel like my father probably died worrying about me. So you know, like that, that oh. can kind of happen. Oh, such a bummer! But look, I, I'm laughing at it, folks. So it's okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always that... it's because my wife <laughs> has this real. thing where she's like, "Oh, I just had a signal from my dad," or you know, my dad came to me in a dream, and I my dad literally ghosted me, like just died, <laughs> and then is. Has no interest in showing me a sign or anything. Like just nothing from the great beyond. <laughs> no little indicator well, that he, he's watching. But I'm, I, you know, I always like to say, and I'll say, I always like to say that you know the good things that came to me in life, I think, be, happened in part because I probably had an extra advocate, you know, upstairs somewhere. And that's saying a lot as a person who's generally, I'm pretty agnostic. But yeah. you know, on the same, I also feel like. I guess the reason why I'm not full on atheist is because I just don't really, I, I don't pretend to know what happens. You know, it, yeah. it could just be the infinite black yeah. darkness. Right. Or it could be something really interesting. I have no idea. But I will say that, uh, you know, I, I think some of the good things happened might have been because uh, somebody was making a case for me up there. But we've gotten a little bit off from well, the Well, I, no, I, I want to go a little further off and then I'll bring <laughs> us back. But I don't all know right, if you watch right. the show The Golden Bachelor uh, or not. But, I, I know what it is, obviously. I okay, well, there was this moment where these two people and both their spouses had died, and they're standing sort of looking at the horizon, and they're saying, you know, they kind of like asking permission of their dead spouses, and they're like, you know, I think they would approve of us getting together, Billy and Tony. Like, I think they're looking down, whatever. And I turned to my wife, and I, I said... I think Billy and Tony are fucking each other in heaven and they don't care about it. Like, like why shouldn't they be fucking too? You know what I mean? Like they just get to look down and approve. It's like, no, why they're fucking anyway. Uh, but you, I, like I to think that after death, there's a lot more to do than just sit around and watch this boring show. about. Yeah, I, I really hope there's something more interesting going yeah, on. Yeah. I'm not going to be like, I'm glad my spouse is happy. Um, <laughs> from heaven. Uh, it's, a, it's like, I, I take an improv class. It's like a it's like a bad improv scene where the two people on stage are talking about somebody not on stage. Like if, if, if that's what heaven's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't sound too fun. Well, so you're at, at Harvard and were you doing any of the sort of traditional pre comedy, pre show business no. stuff no. of Lampoon or no, and if I do have regrets, it is that I figured out pretty late in life what I wanted to do. No, I didn't do the lampoon. I mean, like... So you weren't interested at that point? Like, it wasn't like you felt, oh, intimidated by it or not, that wasn't for you or you I or remember lack of awareness or what? My friends, including my my current writing partner, Bashir Salahuddin, um, who has done, um, you know, almost everything I've done in, in Hollywood, you know, I've done with him. We would sit around and watch The Simpsons all day. And we always heard these, you know rumors <laughs> these things posted on the kiosk uh <laughs> about like you know oh if you want to write for the simpsons you should really go write for the lampoon 
And I will say, and I, you know, I don't think this is controversial. The Lampoon is like any college team. Like some four years are outstanding and everybody's yeah. famous and some years are a little off. And, uh, you know, I don't know who was on the Lampoon when I was there, but you know, we weren't laughing at it. Um, in fact, <laughs> there was, there was a, there was a, there was sort of like an offshoot that was really funny. I want to say it was called like Goblin or Gremlin or something like that of like some guys who decided the Lampoon wasn't funny and they were going to do their own comedy humor magazine. I don't think it lasted after they graduated, but like we always look forward to that publication coming oh, that's because we were cool. like, Oh, those guys are actually really funny. And I feel like <clears throat> towards the very end of my college career, maybe my senior year, the onion started publishing and we, we were that tears was over unreal. Them. That yeah. was, that was, it was such, it was amazing. so good. It was so good that I felt like it put so many other college humor magazines to shame. So I feel like, you know, everything kind of goes in circles. By the time I was out in LA, like I said, I was working at Paramount. I decided I wanted to be just a DJ. So I left Paramount. That's when my mom got worried because she was like, oh, God, he, we had made our peace with Hollywood. Now he's just a DJ in these nightclubs. I remember my father dropped me off at one, <laughs> one the very first place I ever DJed. If you know the L.A. Uh, nightlife scene, there's a place called The Room on Kawanga. And that was when The Room had the entrance in the alley, uh, not even in the front. And he dropped me off in this alley with some records. And he told me later, he was like, I was never more worried about you that night. I dropped you off in a dark alley with some records and you started knocking on the back door of this club at 8 p.m. So, you know, I scared him. But um, just to bring that story full circle, uh, as I was DJing, I actually became pretty successful DJing. I became the director of music and talent, which is a fancy title for saying I hired the DJs at the Standard Hotel and the uh, Chateau Marmont. If, if Andre Bellage was the owner... I yes. hired the DJs as well as the box talent, like the the women and the men who went in the 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 box behind yeah, the front desk. God. Yeah, I remember when you rejected me, sort of. <laughs> I, I was I, I wasn't going to bring it up, nobody. but you know, <laughs> you'd be surprised uh, how people would show up for a hundred dollars just to sleep, you know, in a box. Like it wasn't yeah. for much money, but there was some prestige to it. So. so. Did you feel when you were at Harvard, like, were you into being at Harvard and feel a part of it? Or were you kind of like distance front? Were you like, this is kind of lame? Was it a window into something? Or was it just kind of like a vocational thing? Like, I got to get this name on a piece of paper and then I can go do what I want. (laughs) No, I told my second grade teacher that I wanted to go to Harvard. So for me, Harvard was the culmination of everything I had done for the last 10 years in school. Um, I was super excited to get there. I didn't know what kind of Harvard student I wanted to be. I didn't know if I wanted to wear the tweed <laughs> right. jackets and the khakis or be like, you know, some fire brand, you know, dressed like whatever a 90s hippie would have looked like and just <laughs> been completely anti-established. I didn't know what kind of Harvard. It turned out that I was like somewhere in between and I and, and my grades were somewhere in between. And even Harvard itself was somewhere in between. You know, there were, yeah. there were moments where I was like, I'm so happy I go here. I, I get to meet this professor who's making, you know, headlines. And there were other times when I was just like, man, this place is really not what I wanted in a college and, and socially not what I wanted because I was coming from Atlanta where I was, I mean, Atlanta was so black when I was growing up. Like it was, I I think I saw a statistic that in the eighties, you know, when I would have been a kid, Atlanta was something like 80% black. So to go to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where like, first off the black people were on the other side of the river. And you have to take a train there to see them. Um, <laughs> you know, like, so everything was weird. Everything was absolutely weird. And uh, without calling any, you know, there are a couple of famous students uh, 
when I was there. I, I don't want to call them out because it's, okay. it's such water under the bridge. But you know, like they were black, but they they didn't associate with black people. It was weird. It was it was there was a weird racial dynamic that was going on. Uh, that's probably not even a thing now because you just have to realize that the '90s are a really long time ago. Like. Yeah. For the most part, all the black kids listen to the hip hop and to the hip hop. To the hip hop, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Showing your age. And the hip hop. Uh, yeah, the hip hop. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel like nowadays, like, everybody listens to a lot of the same music, you know, as opposed to back then when when there was still kind of a balkanization mm-hmm. in the music. And 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 to that degree, uh, one of the things that I liked about moving to California after Harvard, uh, I feel like that's when I really came into my own musically was that within literally a year of being in LA, I figured out, oh, I like more than hip hop. Also Puffy had taken over hip hop. And I wasn't yeah. I wasn't feeling the Puffy bad boy phase like I'd been feeling the Tribe Called Quest phase. Yeah. So you uh, weren't hip-hop. acting in stuff or really writing in stuff at that point. And so Not you, you came out here to do music, it sounds like. And then were you I, at, No, like- I I came I came out I came out because I thought I wanted to do Hollywood. My sister was a casting director, uh, Tom oh, okay. Cruise's production partner, a woman named Paula Wagner had come and given a speech at Harvard. She pulled me aside and was like, you know, I you you seem to have the personality. Come, come to LA and the second you get to town, call my office. I want to introduce you to my husband. His name is Rick Nasita. He's a partner at CAA and we're going to set you up. And I, I believed her. I sold my comic wow. book collection and mm-hmm. I bought a plane ticket. And I said, bye mom and dad, I'm going to Los Angeles. And when I got here, I, I called Paula Wagner, and I never spoke to her again. Like oh. she was, she, talk about ghosting. Like wow. I never, uh, I wow. you know never found her again. But I, I I did fall in love with the city. I did fall in love with this place. So I came out here for that. But what I was saying about music was that musically, LA was pretty different. Like the Melrose Strip is a ghost of what it used to be. I remember I used to go down to the Melrose area and. I would talk to kids who like drum and bass and I didn't even know what that was at the time, but I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is like hip hop sped up to, you know, like a 33 record played at 45. This is really fun. And um, I got into garbage. I thought that, I thought that group was like a very yes. cool sort of like, it felt like hard, you know, admittedly I got into crystal method and um, chemical brothers yeah. and a bunch of, you know, electronica at the time. And so within a year or two of being in LA, my musical palette had just greatly expanded. So you, awesome. I mean, one of the things I love about your show with Blake is that it, I, I mean, I told him it's sort of like the music appreciation class I wish I had had. Um, because for Aren't me, we music. The cool professors? I feel like we're those yes. cool professors. Yeah. yeah. Like hey, I've smoke, always, them, smoke out. <laughs> like everyone likes music, right? Like everyone says, oh, yeah. I, I like music. But the way I consume it is kind of like I used to buy an album and listen to it. And, you know, I didn't have good fidelity equipment. And I, you know, play guitar, so I would try to play it. But I'm wondering, like, music seems so meaningful to you. Like, how do you listen to music? Like, when you're exposed to music, because it's hard for me to get into something I don't already know because I'm old. But, like, <laughs> what is what are you listening for? Or how are you, like, when you buy a piece of music, are you putting on high-fidelity headphones and just, <laughs> are you trying to deconstruct the mentality of the person? Or are you just trying to relate to it on a feeling level like this makes me feel this yeah I, i'll say music absolutely my drug um you know because i know that when i find something i like it's going to give me a rush you know and and i i come across it from everywhere i i listen to so many different spotify and pandora and you know playlists i i still stream the bbc you know one of the first uses i ever once the internet really started to come into what it was going to become like around like 2000 or whatever one of the first things i did was i was like 
I want to I want to hear what the UK is listening to because I was mm. so into Astral Works records and uh, Virgin Records was still big at the time. Yeah, I really wanted to know what they were actually listening to in the UK right now. Um, and I still listen to the BBC Sounds, but 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 also I come across music. <laughs> One of my favorite, most recent coming across a song was like I was in bed asleep. Uh, you know, I fell asleep first. My wife tends to stay up like an hour or two later than me watching movies or whatever. Uh, I guess she had been watching Magic Mike 3 or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't even know what movie it was. But it's that wonderful thing where like a song a, a, a song is so good that it actually wakes you up. Uh, and yeah. at the end of that movie, they played Don't Be Afraid by Diplo and Jungle. And it woke me up. And I was like, holy shit, what is this song? And I fumble in the darkness to get out the Shazam. And I hit yeah. uh, the thing and it, and, it, and it found it, you know, because sometimes Shazam lets you down. You're just like, oh, yeah. And, uh, and I mean, like, I, I, I truly, truly, whether it's in movies or, you know, on KCRW or in a podcast, like, I'm always, I made a, I made a, I'm always listening for new music. I made a pack with myself when I was about 20, when I figured out that like most people in their forties are still talking about the music that was big in their twenties. You know, most people yeah. really just gravitate towards that music that came out between the ages of 15 and 25. I made a pact with myself. I was like, I'm never going to be that person. And trust me, it takes a lot of effort because we don't have the radio to be sort of the gatekeeper, gatekeeper. Right. Of the Cause yeah. that's, you talk about that importance to you on the show. Uh, yeah. You've talked about it a few times that there was like the Atlanta just, radio scene. Oh yeah. I mean, like I'm, I'm always, if I find something that's consistently exposing me to music that I like, I, I tend to try and keep it around because it has gotten harder. Everything is so spread out. And, you know, sometimes even when I'm listening to a Spotify playlist that I know has millions of followers, I'm like, man, I'm probably the only person listening to this song right now. Like there is something actually special about just listening to the radio sometimes. Cause well, you're like, well, at least some people I know are also hearing this song right now. What's crazy is so when I grew up and, and Alec was this way too, the, um, the Casey Kasem top 40 was like, oh, you on Sunday, you're like, this is what we're doing. Like me and my brother were like, we're going from 40 to one and we're going to sit here. And it was like a big deal when you're like, Oh my God, hungry. Like the wolf dropped to three, like freak out. And, and, but there was a my sense. And I think this was kind of true. It was like anyone I heard on that was now a millionaire. Like yes. they've made 100%. it. And this is, and, and now it's like, Every time I hear a song, I say to myself, they're probably broke. Like, they're not making any money. Because my daughter, I have I have two kids, and my older daughter's starting to get into it. And she has these Spotify playlists that are quite good, and I never know any of it. But, I mean, if, if yeah. for people looking to discover mu new music, is that what you'd recommend? Just kind of, like, let the internet bring stuff to your doorstep? Or are there still, like, because, you know, there's no Rolling Stone or Billboard, really, <laughs> that is telling you yeah. kind of what to do well okay a couple of quick things i, I i'd say uh without i've never been paid by any of these people so I don't think any of these of are paid endorsements <laughs> but i i still think the kcrw does something interesting um and i even get on their case sometimes i mean like <laughs> i won't use any names but i was driving down anaheim with my kids and i was listening to it and they played james brown i feel good followed mm -hmm. by brandy sitting in my room and i called one of the djs there i know and i was like Who's DJing right now? This is terrible. Like, I don't know who's I'm like James Brown. I feel good. Is that even a song? I know that it's a song. Right. In your hate mail my way. Yeah. But at some point, we've all heard that song yeah. far too many times yeah. to yeah. ever be included. Unless, unless the guy who 
you know, with the engineer, you know, the guy who played the drums is di- is died today. That's right. a, that's uh, a to play that song today. Well, then it feels like you wouldn't feel good, though. Uh, <laughs> why are you trolling this man with the title of the most successful song you ever worked on? No, Sad I think remix that I- <laughs> of that that you put together, slowed down. Anyway, I feel good. <laughs> uh, oh my god, I want to make a joke, but that's going to take me too far. A walk. Um, <laughs> I think KCRW is still good. Uh, you know, everybody's got their Spotify playlist. I still really believe that if you decide that, okay, I want to hear hip hop or I want to hear dance, the BBC still does a great job of curating new artists. I think it's so important to support and listen to new artists just because it, it allows like, you know, some fresh air into the world, you know? Yeah. Are you um, still active so. as a drummer and, and collaborating with anyone? Or is that just something like that's a hobby? Or? Uh, no. In fact, I would say that the only musical collaboration that I've done in the last two years has actually been with uh Blake luxury Robin. Um, huh. And we've had some, we've had some great fun working yeah. uh, together, but that's pretty much it between the pandemic and the strike. You know, my most of my professional focus has been on the TV shows and the movies that we're working on. But uh, musically, uh, we had a show called Sherman Showcase on IFC, ran for about two and a half seasons. <laughs> that that third thing is sort of like an asterisk. Um, you know, like we we created a lot of music for that show, and on that material, I worked with Blake Robin. I worked with uh, Fonte from the band uh, Little Brother. Uh, John Legend and Neo and a bunch of uh, a bunch of artists along the way. Well, that's a that's a good segue into sort of the TV film uh, writing acting side of your life. So it sounds like you came out here just to kind of you know on on Paula Wagner's vow to set you up <laughs> uh, in a lucrative career. <laughs> she really delivered. I thought I had it made. I thought yeah, I had friends that, in high places. Like so, the way I got into comedy was you know I always felt. When I was in school, they would give a writing assignment and I wouldn't do the assignment, but I would do something different. It would be funny. And I would get in general, like I would expect to get an F and then I would get an A because they were like, this is like I would surprise the teacher. But it was something I always kept quiet because it it sounds like we grew up a little similarly that there was the expectation I was going to do something useful. (laughs) And so it was like, well, you could be the funny whatever. Yes, uh, exactly. Then, I thought it was going to be the funny stockbroker. It's yeah. 100% uh, right. Absolutely. What a horrible person that, oh, that would God. be. <laughs> funny stockbroker. But so, but then what ended up happening was, I so I'd never gone to see stand-up until I was 22. And some friends were like, hey, we're going to this night at a club called Rooster Tea Feathers. And I was like, okay. Not realizing it was, I had gone to like amateur night. I Wait, what like, city is this? What city is this? It was in um, Rooster Tea Feathers. Was in like Sunnyvale, California, or okay. something. Oh. I, okay. I think, it. or it might have been Mountain View or something. Uh, but not realizing it was amateur night, I was like, I thought they were all professionals. So I was like, these people are so bad. I owe it to myself now to try because, like, I know I'm funnier than this. And I, I quit my job, flew to New York, and started doing stand up. So, I'm wondering, did you have a similar experience, like sitting at your desk at Paramount, just kind of going? Oh fucking come on! This stuff sucks. Like I could do. So this. very similar. Uh, it was actually I didn't go straight from Paramount to DJing. There was a two week period where I left Paramount. And I was like, I'm going to be a film exec. This uh, producer named Paul Hall uh, is looking for a junior exec. I'm going to go do that. And it was in my second week there. <laughs> he he handed me a script. He's like, I want you to read this and give me your thoughts. And I read the script. It was horrible. I'll never forget. The end of the script was 
It was something to the effect of urban comedy. It was yeah. something to the effect of they all hop into their hydraulic, their their oh. Cadillacs with hydraulics, and they go bouncing off into the sunset. Oh. And I remember <laughs> if you want to make a movie that black people will hate you for, we should do this movie. <laughs> and I proceeded in the in the in my notes to write this is what I think should happen in Act One. This is what I think should happen in Act Two. You know, just to try and salvage it, just to try and save it. Right. And you I didn't have a background to... in, like, you weren't taking writing courses for TV. You know what was crazy is I, I had been writing stories as a kid, but I had stopped writing stories sometime in, like, middle school or high school. Okay. Wow. You know, like, in, in, in literally in the third grade, I wrote a 50-page story called oh, wow. The Adventures of Royce Riddle. It was about a black guy with my last name who was infiltrating the Nazis to assassinate Hitler. And I never addressed... How a black guy was going to infiltrate the Nazis right. that didn't even uh, seem like they would catch on <laughs> at some point. <laughs> there were a lot of him in waiter suits, but he was getting closer <laughs> and closer. And um, and that one made and the and the teacher in third grade liked it enough. She actually, you know, she put it in the school library. So I considered myself oh, wow. published, That's but cool. I had put inside cool. creative writing. I was all about other writing. Anyway, I'm sitting there with this producer two weeks after leaving Paramount. He rings into the office. He was like you know what, I just met you, but I don't think you're an executive. He was like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say from these notes, which I think are good, but he was like, but you want to write the story. He was like, this is not how executives do their job. He was like, you should probably be a writer. And even though I didn't know him that well, it just, it, it felt like the truth. It felt like he had actually unlocked something in me that I had probably either suppressed due to family expectations or had forgotten was even there. Yeah. And so wow. for the next couple of years, um, you know, I DJed to pay my bills, but my friend from college, Bashir, just moved out to L.A. We started writing together. We put together a company. Everybody in the company went on to do great things. I mean, like everybody, nobody was famous, you know, but like it was me and Bashir, Wyatt Sinek, Robin Thede, uh, Nika King from Euphoria. Like I look back, I'm like, one day we should just do a, a, a reunion special oh, or, yeah. you know, yeah. something like that. But like we put together this group. We got all these re- all these rave reviews. And then we started getting money from people to do web videos because YouTube was brand new. And before you knew it, we had an agent and we started to have a career. Um, wow. But it all sort of came out of just, you know, one so random was conversation. Bashir more on this track anyway, or did you pull him into? Bashir wasn't writing, but he was acting a lot. And in, in, in college, he was doing, you know, he, he performed Othello, I remember. Okay. And he did, a, he did a one-man play about Paul Robeson. So Bashir always knew. And that is the one thing that sort of drives me crazy is that if I had known at college the way that, you know, I would end up going, like, I probably would have done Lampoon. I probably would have started a lot earlier. Um, but you know what? It, it's hard to second guess because I kind of maybe needed to do that other stuff to know that I wasn't interested in it. Because I've seen that, too. I've seen people come out here to be an actor and it's a little bit hard. And then they're like, you know what? I'm going to go to Wall Street. You know, I've seen yeah. I've seen the reverse. So maybe I had to go through what I had to go through, you know, so what I read did. was that like David Allen Greer saw some of your stuff and hired <laughs> you guys for yeah. chocolate news. Is that accurate? Cause I, I kind of remember I, I was in that comedy central world at that time. I, I wrote for um, 
DL Hughley weekends at the DL when like yeah. I, I went to a meeting with Robert Morton. He was like, I'm either gonna hire you for <laughs> Mind of Mencia or Weekends at the DL, which now is just <laughs> such a such, like such a horrible choice. It's like, look, these guys are either gonna hit you with a baseball bat or they're gonna like fire a gun into your foot. Which do you want? Like so uh but I was also in the, the David Spade showbiz show. But so I'm which I'm I really like I'm not just saying it because you're here. I I, I like that. That was a good show. I, I watched it. I watched yeah, it. I mean, he, um, he was funny. We, I, we were there at a weird time in in, in Comedy Central because I feel like everything still had that sort of like post Chappelle. Um, yes, they were really trying to do that again and again. And who, and who to blame them? Because I, I, you know, Chappelle's show was probably the last show I literally rushed home to see. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's. I don't think we had a DVR yet, so <laughs> I think our VCR uh, was like complicated. So <laughs> I think I, I remember like driving home like Bashir calling me like yo when you get here wait wait till you see this episode of Chappelle he's talking about Prince you know like it was just like <laughs> there was still a degree of that in uh, in the culture and I love Robert Morton I actually had a uh, I had lunch with him uh, not too long ago yeah I feel like that guy brought a lot of really funny uh good people into the business but yeah uh, David Allen Greer he saw some of our material like this and then uh and then we worked on Chocolate News for a couple of months and I will say we were the baby writers on the show we didn't get one joke on the show. Really? <laughs> no. I always say, like, when people were like, yo, I love Chocolate News. I'm always like, ah, you didn't, you didn't get any jokes yeah. on the show. And then people were like, yo, I didn't like Chocolate News. I'm like, hey, we didn't get any jokes. <laughs> 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 it's like, it's, <laughs> sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. But uh, we were only there for about four months before we got a call saying that, hey, Jimmy Fallon's going to take over the old Conan O'Brien slot. Uh, in two months, do you guys want to go out there and be writers there? And so we went and we met with Jimmy. And I mean, like I got on the plane like two days later and moved to New York. And we were literally the fourth and fifth people that he hired. Because when we got there, there were literally only five offices. There was Jimmy, there was the writer's room, there was something called the producer's room, and there was the roots room. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, you know, there was nobody in the building. I mean, like it was just completely like everybody thought he was going to be Chevy Chase part two and have this, you know, embarrassing late night show that was going to fail. But uh, he brought in all new people, nobody from the the Conan thing. And like, it was all of our first shot really to work on a show. I feel like as much as I love Dag and I do, that was four months that could have gone in any direction. We were at Jimmy Fallon for four years. So we we wrote... That's a long time because I know, you know, they're kind of notorious for cycling through people over there um, and people and they've and I know good people who've come and gone like Anthony Jeselnik was a writer there. Yeah. Love Anthony. I mean, like our first crew was like Anthony Jeselnik, Morgan Murphy, uh, you know, Mike DeCenzo, who is a writer's writer, you know, just one of the funniest dudes on the planet. Um, Me and Bashir were there like there were not a lot of people there, but I feel like everybody for them that Michael Blyden, who went on to direct. So many episodes of, of Southside, um, you know, the show that we ended up creating for HBO Max. It was and, and Comedy Central, I guess you'd have to say. It was a, it was a wild time, and I I definitely felt like I, I feel lucky that we were there because we got to write, you know, Slow Jam the News and History of Rap. Oh, we got to yeah. do some yeah, really special. I wanted to I wanted to ask you okay. about History of Rap. If it, yeah. I read that you had you co-written three editions of that, were they the <laughs> original ones or what, how did that? Oh, work? absolutely. So. <laughs> So this is a funny story relates back to DJing. I was, you know, even though Questlove is on the show, I DJed all the the, the staff parties. Like, so Amazing. when the Christmas time came. Yeah. Was that weird? 
or Dikijay for Questlove? Absolutely <laughs> yeah. mind boggling. Yeah. Like, you know, he just stands there and looks at you. He's like, Don't look at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's time to um, celebrate with Cool and the Gang. Yeah, I feel like that's like when I sing New York, New York for Seth. I mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh my God. So, so real quick, I was DJing a, a, one of our rap parties and you know, WRAP party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I never forget, I played this set that like Jimmy absolutely loved and, and like ever, all the writers, it was like, it was like a euphoric moment, like early on in the, in the history of the show. And so at one point his, uh, you know, he pulls us into the office, me and Bashir, and he's like, Hey, I want to do this thing with Justin. where like, we start at the beginning of, of rap and then we do like a medley of all these rap songs. So I went back to my desk. I pulled up my playlist in Serato of exactly what I played to like build the party up to that moment. Yeah. And I brought him back what was probably like a 10-minute melody, in which case he was just like, ah, oh, yeah, the audience won't know that one. They won't know this one. But they literally wrapped the playlist that I had done at the party. So that was an oh, nice. example of like oh, the cool. the uh, <laughs> of the weird side career that I had coming back into play yeah. um, in what was quickly becoming my primary career. But sorry, I, I have one more question about the process of that. So the yeah. way they seamlessly go from one song to another, did you cut the songs together, edit it, they practice it, and then Questlove arranged yeah. it? Yeah, like- so we did the 10-minute version with Quest. Somewhere on my laptop, I still have a version where me and Bashir are doing all the Jimmy. I usually did Jimmy. Oh, I'm sorry, Bashir did Jimmy. I think I did Justin. And then, you know, That's me great. and Quest were like, you know, they ain't never going to do this. This is, this is way too crazy. And they you know, we, had, we, had some, we had some wild songs in that original mix. <laughs> okay. Um, and then Jimmy heard it and he loved it. And then we went back to the Roots Room and we cut about 60% of it out to to make it uh, go. And then we brought in uh, Jimmy and, and, and Justin. Every, when you work at a show like that, every guest star requires something different. Like, so for... You know, if it's Gwyneth Paltrow, you got to do maybe a lot of coaching. For Justin, he was just like, where's the sheet? All right, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's awesome. He, he went through it the first time. But she tried to give him one note. <laughs> I probably should even say it. I'm going to say it. He tried to give Justin a note. Justin just looked at him. <laughs> but she just said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I, for the record, B, I love that you that you tried to give him that note because I think you're right. But that's what's probably thinking. I do this for a living. Um, awesome. It was one of those interesting days, I got to say, folks. Um, yeah. I'd love to. One, one time when we're not recording, I'll tell you some some messed up history. <laughs> so okay. Working with some some questionable guest stars, but but overall, it was fun working with uh, Justin. And when we got out, when we when we stood it up in front of the audience, it just it it, it crushed the first it time. Really and did. I'll tell you, the only other time that it went so smoothly after one rehearsal, because we only had to practice history of rap one time was uh, Slow Jam in the News with Barack Obama. We wrote all of the Slow Jam in the News. In fact, uh, the first couple of times we did Slow Jam in the News, it was a different song every time. So every time we were going to Slow Jam the News, I would get down there with Quest and I'd be like, ah, should we make this one sound like an Usher song or more like a Teddy Pendergrass song? Like uh-huh. It was like creating a song every single time. Eventually, just we always went back to that same medley because it, it just it worked too well. And sometimes we didn't have a lot of time to rehearse. But when we did it with Barack Obama, I'll never forget, we obviously, he's the freaking president of the United States, we had one time to go over it with him, and he didn't even do it, he didn't even attempt it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he just, he was just like, well, why don't you guys do it? And then, like, we were like, okay, well, here we go. And we said, and he's like, 
okay, I got it. And I swear to God, he got out there and he did it absolutely perfectly. And I was just like, this man could have been a comedian. His timing is just wow. so freaking on point. What's it like to meet a president? Because I've, I, I, I feel like now I, it wouldn't. I like if the, I heard, oh, the president wants to meet you. I might go like, I don't know. I'm a little busy. Uh, like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Obama was sort of the last one where I would, yeah. I would be like, oh, my God. Like, this yeah. is the president. I remember so that moment like I was I was in L.A. one time when <laughs> when Clinton was walking a line and he shook my hand. I was like, that was super cool. And then years later, I was at a restaurant with my pregnant wife and Bill Clinton walks in with the security detail and he points to my wife and he's like, when's the baby due? And we're like, it's, it's doing two months, two months. He's like, oh, it's not long before they go from that to Chelsea. Enjoy these times. And I was like, what a fucking cool guy. Like, you know, like, I was like, <laughs> I, I, I pointed to our friend who was with us, my, my wife's girlfriend. I was like, sleep with him. <laughs> no, he's the most amazing man on the planet. He you deserves know, it. He did, that's what yeah. he wants. And by the way, she was like, oh, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> like, it was crazy, but to meet Obama, and I, I've, it's only happened twice, but this was the first time. Second time, and we were just in a lineup for, for you know, taking pictures, and it, it didn't feel as special. The first time was to do, uh, to coach him through Slow Jam the News, and one second you're in this room, and there's nobody but me, Bashir, Jimmy, and uh, Tariq, uh, you know, Black Thought from the Roots. Nobody, no chairs, no, it's like a gray room, and then in come 20 of the biggest dudes you've ever seen in these men in black suits. Uh-huh. And then right there in the middle of them, just sort of bouncing along <laughs> is, is Obama, who by no means is short, but he's not like this freight truck of, of man that I don't even know where they grow these people. Um, <laughs> and then he just came over and he was like, Jimmy, how you doing? Black thought. Good to see you. And he's like, these, these are our two writers who write slow jam the news. He's like, this is, this is, you know, Jimmy's, the ultimate host, you know, always yeah. a host. He's like, this is Diallo and this is Bashir. And he's like, Diallo and Bashir. Those are, those are your names, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I can't quite remember. He made a joke. Were about you like, our... you're Barack. It's not like that. <laughs> that, so... that was the joke. Exactly. That was the joke he was trying to make. I wish I could remember exactly what he said. But, you know, it, the, the light behind his eyes knows. It was clear that he knew exactly what he was saying. Okay. And, and, uh, and we had a, and then we had like 15 minutes with him and it was great. And uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those times where you're like, I'm going to try and remember this. Cause I'll probably be talking about this to some grandkids. Someday. So when something goes viral, like those things do, um, yeah. do you feel, you know, is there the sense of like, God, I wish it could be me. Or is there the, like, this is so awesome. Or is it like, now, how do we top it? Or is it just like, <laughs> let's take a victory lap or some combo move? I've never you had anything what? really like catch on like that. So I will say, I think it's, I think early on we were like, how do we top it? You know, I remember a couple of weeks after that one went viral, uh, somebody came to us and was like, okay, now our guest is going to be Madonna. How do we break the internet? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. right. you can't, you can't. You really can't plan for it. Our, our little show, Sherman Showcase on IFC, to this day, just over the weekend, a clip from that show got millions of views because people always think it's real. It's a song called Drop It Low for Jesus. And it was brought to us by Bashir's sister had this idea that she pitches the room. She was like, hey, what if on the, because Sherman Showcase is, um, if 30 Rock takes place at SNL, Sherman Showcase takes place at Soul Train. So okay. a lot of the clips just look like a dance show where someone got on stage and performed. And this was an original song. All the songs on Sherman's were original. 
there's an original song called Drop It Low for Jesus. And the and the idea is that, hey, if you can drop it low for all these, you know, men out here, you can definitely drop it low for him. <laughs> and every, I swear, every couple of months, some church group or some <laughs> some just group of people discover this clip, think it's real. And then uh, I just, I have the greatest time reading the comments because it's like, oh, these people going to hell and like, <laughs> oh no, I can't believe they did this. And then every now, you know, a couple of people will be like, oh, this is so funny. And then I always get in the comments. I'm like, it's from a comedy show, you guys, you know, but <laughs> I really don't think you can plan virility. I just don't think because too many people have tried. And uh, I think even more than anything, TikTok has even shown that you know, sometimes it helps that there is nobody famous attached to the viral moment. Like it's it's more viral if people think it's legit or just a you know just a person with a phone. You know, like I I just I don't think you can ever plan. I think you just got to be happy when something does go viral. I don't think there's any way to plan for it. So how did you then you know you being being sort of a host? I don't want to say favorite, but. Being sort of a valuable member of a late night team is pretty intoxicating. Like, I mean, I felt like Alec and I had that experience on Kilborn to a lesser that, degree, lesser degree, obviously, <laughs> and and fewer people watch the show. But it was like we were in with the host and we got yeah. our stuff on the air. And um, what made you decide to like move on from that, or what did Hollywood start calling because it's like, oh, these are the guys who did this, and now it's time to like see what else they got. I I think it was um. Well, first off, I think we never, despite our successes there, we never felt like, <laughs> we always felt like we were two weeks two weeks away from getting fired anyway. You know, like right. you could be very popular on the Tuesday show, have something on the Thursday show that bombed and just be like, oh. Were you we, writing we're, the we're monologue fired. as well? Like, because no, I know. That was a total, no, okay. that was a different group of writers. Okay. Jeremy Bronson and uh, John Ryman. And, and we had a, a bunch of really talented uh, uh, monologue writers who. Because I heard that's a pressure day. cooker. That monologue oh, that's is terrible. like 80, I, 100 jokes a day, which is like obscene. Whoa. I mean, and you and if you write something that's particularly a stinker, you know, you, someone might ask, well, who wrote that one? <laughs> you know, like, it's oh, yeah, just, it's kind of crazy. But we were what they would call the sketch writers. And um, that was you know, bits at the desk and things at the, you know, on the stage. So and were you we had directing a lot of those as well? Like when it sometimes, was sometimes, your... sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, Michael Blyden directed a lot of them. And that was one reason why we decided to work with him on Southside. But I do think that uh, it's a pressure cooker. It's a grinder. After four years, we were definitely ready to move on and do something else. Um, we had become, I wouldn't say friends, but like we had, we had definitely caught the attention of Lauren Michaels. And we were like, Hey, we have an idea for an HBO show. So, we pitched HBO a show. They liked the idea. They kind of bought it in the room. And so we were like, we want to move back to L.A. where, you know, sort of our, you know, our livelihoods are. So we moved back to L.A. Was this South next... Side or was this something else? No, this was something that unfortunately I don't think we'll ever, unless it gets leaked. Uh, this is something that started off its life is called The Reporters. And then it became Brothers in Atlanta. Um, so we spent four years at Fallon, sold this idea to HBO. We were like, we're out. Thank you, Jimmy. Moved back to LA, spent the next four years in development with HBO. And wow. uh, and that yes. that to me is like the hard times. Like, because, you know, I already had two kids. And, I, you know, in my time at Fallon, I got married. We had two kids. Um, LA was definitely cheaper than New York, but like development money is is thin. So to spend four years trying to do that, that was really tough. I think that, you know, and by the way, at the end of that four years, we came out of it with two pilots and no show. So. Yeah. It was wow. really like a time for, you know, us to take a step back and try and figure out what we we're going to do in lives. Um, 
But around that time, I did end up, you know, becoming a, a recurring character on Silicon Valley. Bashir was recurring on Looking and eventually Glow. I got a job on an NBC show called Marlon, where I played Marlon Wayans' best friends. Like, by hook or by crook, we started doing all this acting. And then we were able to go back out and pitch again. And so we were you, like, you kind hey. of blow past that. But like, there are people who are just trying to act and they go to <laughs> no, acting school and, they, and it just sounds like you people just liked you and were like, hey, can you, you know, do it or what? Like, how does that happen? I don't I don't think we were ever bad actors. In fact, I didn't. I, we sort of missed the part where I started acting. It was when we had that sketch show uh, with. Oh, Lyon right. And yeah. with, and with so Robin. Get some reps. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't think I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to be strictly Larry David style writer. And and but there were a couple of characters that I would write and nobody was we would audition and nobody was doing it the way I heard it in my head. And mm -hmm. I was eventually like it was actually my mom who was just like, you know, why are you hiding in plain sight? You should get out there and do it. You you're funny. You make people laugh. And so that was the beginning of my acting. And uh, then I signed up for Ivana Chubb, like this is all like back in 2004. So we've jumped back quite a bit. But, yeah, because um, I want to go know, to but, so to Marlon, yeah. because I always say, like, <laughs> I look at the actors and I'm just like, that's just so much better a job to just it's just like, hand me the thing. I memorize it. I you, listen. Tell me what shirt to wear. Stand on the tape. X, <laughs> say the line and go to my trailer and read. Like, I'd be very happy. Listen, my old producer at Fallon, when he found out that I got the job on Marlon, uh, he was like, you have the best job in Hollywood. He was like, to play the best friend on a sitcom. He was like, first off, Marlon's going to do all the craziest big thing. He was like, you just have to come in and essentially be like, you know, the straight man. And, and by the way, I think being the straight man is like both cool and like way harder than it looks. But he was like, you're gonna, you're never gonna have a 5 a.m. call time because they don't do that in multicams. You just show yeah. up and work at about nine. They hand you the script. It's the same. It's made roughly the same pages as yesterday. You do the run through, you got a lunch, they bring in an audience, you come back, you say something funny, 200 people laugh at you, and then you all go to dinner at eight. Like, it's the best life. And oh, yeah. by the way, there's no flying across the country to Vancouver or to Atlanta. Like, you right. drive down the, you know, the 101 to the Universal lot. Right. You see wow. all the people getting on the rise at Universal Studios. They wave at you when you walk in. Like, it's like magic. It's magic time. And I do say that, like, that is by far the most fun job I've ever had. Also, I was on a show with a great star, like Marlon Wayans. I've met a lot of famous people. Some are cool. Some are absolute weirdos. Some <laughs> are deeply insecure and will make your life a living hell. Marlon is such a nice human being. Like, you know, yeah. he just... He'll literally call me up sometimes and just say, like, hey, you know, like, how was your kid's soccer game? <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's a weird level of nice, but it's just like, and he'll make fun of you. You know, he'll call you over to his house and, like, all the Wayans are over there and it's like a roast. Like, all they're doing is making fun of you and everybody else in the room. But it is so familial. And I think because there's so many people there to keep everybody's egos in check, like, it's really just, um, you know, it's really one of the best friendships I've made, regardless of how famous the person was. Like, I yeah. just, I think the world of that dude. And I, I'm always trying to figure out a new project for us to work on. That's yeah. So cool. Well, we, you know, you've been generous with your time. And I, I do want to talk about Southside, you know, before we go, <laughs> because I, I started watching it and prep. And I remember, like, I saw a promo for it. And I remember in my head going, that looks really funny. And then I just, like, I don't watch much TV and I forgot. But uh, so I really like I love these these first two episodes I saw. I'm I'm eager to dive in Thanks. more. 
What was the genesis of that? Was it sort of like, looking at it, I was like, oh, I wonder if they went in and said, like, we have a version. It's sort of like a black office, but different or something <laughs> like because it was like the inner office comedy was great at the at the rent to own. But then there was like this family element. And then there were these cops who were sort of on well, what's the jet like the pitch on that? OK, so the pitch was simply we're going to treat the south side of Chicago like Springfield on The Simpsons. Okay. That was the pitch. I think they heard you know, a rent to own store and thought, you know, oh, it's like the, it's like a black version Superstore of the store or something. But, yeah. Yeah. But if you watch, I really want you to watch the third episode. Because okay. the third episode is where you'll start to see how much we start expanding uh, this place. You know, at the time, you got to remember the South, Chicago and Atlanta to a certain extent are still used as a political football. Like people are always like, yes. well, what about Chicago? You know, like uh, anytime you talk <laughs> about like gun control or anything like that. Um, Bashir is from Chicago. Right after HBO passed on our Atlanta show, where I'm from, we were like, okay, let's do your hometown. Let's do some of these same ideas because Atlanta and Chicago aren't drastically different, you know, places. Um, and then we just started painting this world, you know, based on the, because seriously, I, I hate it when people act like to grow up in black neighborhoods or low income black neighborhoods is like to look out your door every day wondering if you're going to get shot or like, yeah. you know, I always have to sense sometimes executives wanted us to write a serious scene where like, you know, the mom is looking out of the window and it's raining and she's like looking like sad but strong. Like we were like, we're not doing any of that. Shit. Well, you went right <laughs> at that in, I think it was, it might've been the first episode where they, they quit their job and kind of huff and then they go outside and they're shooting. It was just well, so. Well, yeah, because every now and then you want to make Which felt like the like, Simpsons. Oh, wait, it can... <laughs> yeah, like that felt like how they, what what happened to Homer. Like, oh, you know, I quit. They're <laughs> like, just shooting outside. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you like Angus and you like Mayor Quimby and you like, like, that's how we really treat our show. And I really think, you know, I, I like to say that there's not, I don't think there's a weak episode of Southside. I, I really believe that. I think that every single episode, you know, I, I feel like it's well, a the show cop that's who man. adopts the white kid named Josh, too, felt like very, <laughs> like, that's some high level comedy Simpson. That, <laughs> by um, the way, that kid grew up so much by season two that you'll, if you make it a season two, you'll love how we treat that character in season two. Look, I mean, like, You've got politicians and cops. You've got people who work at a rent-to-own store. You've got, you know, the mom. We do so much with the mom who has two sons. One is, is a great science student, and the other one might play in the NBA. So the one who might play in the NBA yeah. gets all the love. You know, like, it's just, it's one of those kind of shows where I yeah, just Yeah, her introduction like, was great. When it was like, I know you have questions. <laughs> yes, I dated Eddie Curry. I mean, the, the Eddie Curry reference alone. Was like, that's, that's so that's funny. Because it's like just a notorious. Kind of tell, the, tell, it, tell folks where we can watch Southside. It's it's on HBO Max. And um, I, I, I'm just going to put this out there. Not to say they're right about everything, but the New York Times uh, did say that Southside was one of the best shows of 2023. Um, yeah. which we're very proud of. That's amazing. Um, nice. I think all three seasons are good. So just give the first episode a watch. I guarantee you, you'll, you'll watch the whole thing. I, I, I second awesome. that. I And I do want to, I just have to ask, because it, you know, I know on these shows, especially when you're shooting single cam, like everyone just always says budget, 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 budget. But it seems like you really stretch the budget. Like to me, it, it's sort of like watching a movie and, and some of the clever stuff you do with video. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit on like, is that planned in the writing or is that stuff yeah. you're finding after you have the script, you go like, write whatever you want and we'll find a way to do it. Yeah. We, I mean, we typically write whatever we want. And at some point we're like, okay, we can't have 32, <laughs> we can't have 32 setups. You know, we got to get this down to 20. 
you know, we still shoot more than we need, but, you know, we're very hard on ourselves in the editing process. And I will say that that show was not, you know, very expensive. We, you know, as you, as you can attest, we, we, we have almost no famous people on the show. Like it's, it's, it's the whole cast. Like we went to Chicago, we cast local Chicago actors. Uh, we had Lil Rel pop in because he's a friend of ours, you know, yeah. Chance the Rapper shows up in season two because he's a friend of ours. Everybody who's making scale. And honestly, the only reason Chance even shows up in seasons two and three is because he saw season one, reached out to Lil Rel and he was like, yo, this is the funniest shit. He was like, how come I even haven't heard of this show? And so through That's Lil cool. Rel, he reached out to us and he was like, dude, I just write me a part. I would definitely come through and do it. He's like, I haven't seen anybody actually depict what it's like to live in Chicago. Even though it's called Southside, we go to Roscoe Village, we go to Wrigleyville, like we go all over the city. Yeah. Yeah. But we really wanted to make it clear that like, the South Side is not the hellhole that politicians and the media would have you believe. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why people, you meet people from Chicago. They're like, I love Chicago. I can't wait to go back. Like, they wouldn't be like that if it was a nightmare town. Right. You know what I mean? So, and I feel like the North Side has always had Bill Murray and the Cubs and uh, the John Hughes movies. But, like, the South Side has, has never really gotten its fair share. So that was another reason why we really wanted to. We wanted to do a show that would make you feel like, you knew what it was like to live in the South Side of Chicago or Southwest Atlanta or South Philly or South Central. We always joked that we could have done a South universe and just yeah. gone to Well, you might. City. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> that's, that's how it happens. Yeah, I, I learned mostly about that from through bad, bad Leroy Brown. So I need, <laughs> I need an updating in my history of, of that area. Um, and, uh, well, I'll heartily recommend the show South Side, your XM, Sirius XM show. One song is just one of my awesome. favorites and awesome. I, I thank you so much for joining us thank today man. it was great talking to you Diallo. i really appreciate it and um guys seriously thank you for having me thank you oh wow diallo is yeah. so cool well, just so cool so yes, interesting awesome. really great goldie you ran great a great interview, interview with him that was thank you really fun i feel like i just sort of was a fly on the wall mm-hmm. um all right now let's get into a part of the show that we like to call top five top five Beautiful Bluetooth, take us away. <laughs> Goldie, this was your category. Tell us what we're top five and about. Uh, the top five things you miss from childhood. Oh, I miss those things. Yeah. Uh, number five for me was biking everywhere. Oh, that's a good that's one. Nice. Hopping on your dirt bike and going to friends unannounced. Yep, butts up, butts up in the air <laughs> biking. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four was never thinking about dinner. Uh, who was going to make yep. it? Mild overlap, overlap. or Mild any overlap. meals or any food? That's a, a major overlap. <laughs> yep. uh, number three for me was renting videos. Oh, yes. that's I nice. I want to go back and rewrite because that's a good one. Not having infinite choices at your disposal, but going somewhere, seeing what was there, yeah, and you, making do. If you lucked into a new release, yep, you watched it. Yep. Yeah. Number Sounds two. So great. Was I miss when bubble gum was king? Oh wow! Uh, yeah, uh, yes. maybe you would ride your bike three miles to go buy some grape bubblicious, <laughs> yes, or some tropical hubba bubba, hubba bubba, hubba bubba. <laughs> and uh, the number one thing I miss, uh, my dad. Oh, oh major overlap. I'm wow. just kidding. <laughs> 
Um, all right, I'll wedge mine in the middle here, Mr. Wedgleydale. Uh, number five for me, things I miss from my childhood, mandatory naps. Ooh, that's uh, nice. I miss that. God, that was such a great time of day. Number four, the smell of Play-Doh. Oh. You yeah, can have wow. that. I know, but I feel weird about it. As the kids say, it doesn't hit the same. All right. Uh, Number three, here's our overlap. Having every meal prepared for me. Yes. Oh, great. Number two, the last day of school. Oh. Oh, God, was that fun. So fun. Yeah, because work, it's like, oh, you have a break, but you're coming back in like a week. I don't (laughs) don't have that. (laughs) I know. Yeah, no, the, the summer, last day of school before summer was excellent. And number one. My birthday. The way that I used to feel about my birthday was just so different. You know, the great cakes you would get as a kid, the little parties you would have with your friends. And now it's like, you know, we we, it's well documented on here. My 50th was a debacle. (laughs) So they're just they're just not getting better and they'll never be what they were. Right. Agreed. Agreed. JC, what do you got? Great lists. My number five, not having to pay bills. Yeah. 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 Number four, having summers off. Yeah. Yes, which mm-hmm. is like the last days. Yeah, summer. yeah. But number three, having bounds of energy. Yes. Oh. <laughs> number two, here's our all crossover. Yep. Having meals made for you. Yes. Yep. Oh, the best. And number one, being carried. I went it out of ET. Maybe I missed that. (laughs) You mean Stu's not throwing you over his shoulder? (laughs) Maybe the other way around. (laughs) Let's go, honey. That's awesome. Um, All right, JC, what do you got for next week? By the way, next week, our guest is going to be John Beckerman. A Letterman legend. John Beckerman. He was doing it when we were struggling. So uh, we we can't wait to talk to him. Yeah, uh, looking next forward week. to that. Yeah. So and next week's top five, it's sort of like the opposite of one I'd done before. This is top five words or phrases to yell or scream. Oh, I like that. You did whisper? I like that. Love that. All right. So we look forward to that. John Beckerman and that top five next week sounds very cool. And now let's end the show as we always do on a high note. Oh, a little long. <laughs> Goldie, why don't you go first today? My high note was Hanukkah. Yeah. And a Hanukkah celebration we had at our house with uh, neighborhood people. Nice. I just think in these times, it was uh, the meaning of it was a lot more profound than it's been in the past years. Oh, that's beautiful. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Well said. Um, my high note is this weekend is our co-podcaster's birthday Aww. on Sunday. We're very excited that he's in another year around the sun or whatever the fuck, however that works. But Goldie, you're an awesome guy. Happy birthday. You you make this show sing and we <laughs> appreciate it. I think everything was false that you said except that it's my birthday. <laughs> 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 well, that's part of my high note. Yeah. Birthday boy. Yeah. Happy birthday, Goldie. Mm. You are a treasure. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, you are very loved by both of us in this treasure. room. Treasure. You should be buried at sea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I walked into that one. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure our friends and uh, listeners feel the same way. Yeah. So happy Thanks. birthday. Say better. <laughs> All right. Oh, hey. 
That's it for this week. All right. Well, that was a fun show. Thank you all for listening. Thank you two for being awesome. Goldie, happy birthday. And we will talk to you again next week. That was my birthday, so I would think next week I could get. All right. We're going to need you here. (laughs) That was fun. We did it. And it stopped right now. Oh, fraud, Stewart.